and we're going to read uh, Isaiah from Isaiah 55. It's on page 524, which is probably above me right there. Um, first, we're going to read that, and then Philippians 4, 1 to 5. I'm going to read both readings, so um, we'll kick off with Isaiah 55. Starting at verse 1. Come all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Okay, we'll flip over to Philippians on 832. Chapter 4. Verse 1 to 9, following on from last week, looking at running the race and pressing on towards the goal. From verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, you who I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with you, you Adia, and I plead with you, Sinteki, to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side and in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You've got your Bibles there, do keep them open. My name's Dave, if we haven't met before, I help at church part-time. And it's great to have you with us. What we've been going through is a book of the Bible called Philippians. And we're down to the last chapter tonight and we'll get finished next week. But let's come before God in prayer before we look at his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us. That as we sit here this evening, Lord, you are working to shape and mould us to be more like Jesus. So we ask, Lord, that you would work through all that is said through our hearts and minds, that we would desire and that we would be changed, that we might glory in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Now going through last week, as we got to the end of chapter 3, the picture that Paul left us with was running a race. It was a sort of race that isn't just like a sprint. It's a race that resembles much more a marathon. It's a run that we began when we gave our lives to the Lord and it's a run that will finish. The finish line will only come either when we die or when the Christ returns. So between the cross and Christ's return, we're running a race, a marathon. But as we run this race, as we persevere, as we keep enduring, it's not like a regular marathon. As we run this race, there's real opposition. Things that are working to try and knock us out of this race. To try and get it so that we don't finish. So we're not just running along idly. There are forces opposing us. And I've known times in my life where being a Christian, where running the race has been easy. It's like doing a downhill run, coasting along, everything feels good. It's easy to praise God, it's easy to delight in church. But I've known times, and I'm sure you have too, where running has been hard. Where you might look back around the previous corner, you were sprinting, now you're running, now you're jogging, then I was shuffling and you're just sort of just going forward. And there are times where I've known struggles in my life, frustrations, doubts, temptation, all sorts of things, sadness, emptiness, where persevering in the race has been a challenge. And I'm sure you've experienced those times too. But as we experience those times, what is going to be there to make sure that we keep on going, that we keep standing firm in Christ? Because if our Bible's there in verse 1, Paul writes to the church and he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord. Dear friends, he's saying, as Christians, stand firm in the Lord. We are to stand firm in Christ. We can't be knocked down. We've got to keep on going. And it's the language of the battlefield, that word stand firm. 
In chapter 3, we were on the racetrack running along. And now he's placed us on the battlefield where we're facing real opposition. He says to you and me, stand firm in the faith. Standing firm means we face a real opposition. And we face opposition, the Philippians faced opposition, and it'll be the same opposition throughout time. The Philippians faced opposition from the world in which they lived. When the gospel went to Philippi, Paul and Silas were persecuted. They were beaten, they were thrown into prison. There was all sorts of resistance against the church. And daily today, we might not face the same real physical resistance from the world, but the world will still work subtly to try and dissuade us from staying with Jesus, to put us in a position where we'll want to make decisions to make life easier, to make life to just take the easy road. And we'll face opposition too, sadly, from within the church. And Paul writes in Philippians of people who are mingling in the church that were teaching things that weren't the gospel. In chapter 3, he talks of those dogs he even refers to them as. Harsh. But they are people that are at work to dislodge us, to knock us out of the race. And we must be watching and being on our guard. And also, too, as we go through Philippians, we can see them having to resist their own sinful nature. Paul writes to them, challenging them not to put their self-interest first, not to complain, not to live lives of disobedience, don't have vain conceit. If we give our sinful nature just a bit, it's going to have its way and will seek to put us in the centre and to move us away from Christ. And at Getaway too, we've heard it clearly that the devil, our great enemy, is at work to make sure we don't finish the race. His schemes are at work through all those things. How can we go through this battle? How can we keep standing firm and not be dislodged? How can we hold our ground no matter what is advancing towards us? That is the challenge for us. That's what we are called to do is to stand firm in these verses. And it's repeated throughout the Bible when God speaks to his people. He says, stand firm. You go back to Exodus, he's saying to Israel, stand firm. You go through, we get to Jesus in the Gospels. And in Matthew 10, 22, Jesus says to his followers, all men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And later he says in Matthew 24, 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. It's paramount that you and I stand firm. Our commanding officer, Jesus, is saying, stand firm. We need to hear it. We can't, when Paul was talking about running the race, he was saying, strive, I forget what's behind, I keep on going. It's the same attitude we need as we stand firm. We do not become complacent. We are aware. We don't shut our eyes. We don't ignore, we're alert to stand firm in Christ. And those verses make it clear where we stand, as I just said, in Christ. We're not going to stand firm if we stand in the world. We're not going to stand firm if we have a foot in the world and a foot in Christ. No, we stand firm with our both feet planted on Christ. To finish the race, that's where we must be. And I have two questions as I think about what it means to stand firm. What's it going to look like? How will you and I know if we're going to stand firm? 
or if we are standing firm? And also to, secondly, how is it going to be possible for us to do that? Life can be hard. We face real significant enemies. How are we going to be able to do it? Now, verse 1 in our Bibles is a bridge between two parts of his letter. Paul hasn't been talking about one topic and he says, we get to verse 1 and he suddenly changes topic. It's a bridge. It starts with, Therefore, my brothers, there's something which he said that we need to have in our minds to bring with us as we go forward. And we heard last week that we saved by faith, that we await the day of Christ's return, the glorious day, the prize, the day that God will, Christ will transform our bodies to be like his. That truth, that reality we have. And as we look forward, Paul is still on the topic of standing firm. And he starts to talk about what it's going to look like. Stand firm in this way. This is what it will look like. He doesn't change his topic. As you and I live between the cross and Christ's return, he is about to talk to us about what standing firm will look like. So firstly, we stand firm with faith in Christ. We stand firm as we keep on living for Jesus. We were saved by faith. We go on with our faith in Jesus. And earlier in this letter, Paul wrote in Philippians 1.27, and we might remember this, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to you, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence... I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Christ. That's a sign you're standing firm in the faith, and that you will be saved. The way that we often talk about faith today. It's like this wafty thing that can just float around in our heads. We can sit and discuss faith and just talk about it. But faith in the Bible, biblical faith, lives in us. It's not just an idea. It's life. When we come to Christ and we say we're putting our trust in Him, our faith in Him, it means that we surrender ourselves to Him. The day we were saved and for the rest of our lives... We have come to him saying, you are good, you are a saviour, we trust you in everything, even the way that you call us to live. If we trust God, we will live his ways. And it's no surprise that when Paul, in this topic of standing firm, talks about the way the church lives as a sign or a way to go forward. It's not standing firm if we can just sit down and tick a test of what is in the contents of the gospel. We're standing firm when the gospel is alive in us and we're living it. And so in this verse 1, Paul throws us forward that we've been set apart to live for God. And so for you and me in Kirribilli today, what's that going to look like? If you've got your Bibles there, Paul goes down into verse 9. We will get to what's in between, but in verse 9, he says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Paul, in these few verses, isn't going to be able to put everything that he's ever said. Paul's not, in these few verses, going to be able to give you everything you need for every scenario. In between, he gives us principles. But he says, as we hold on to everything he's given us, 
And we have that in the Bible. Paul was set apart by God to give us the instruction of God. He says, put it into practice. Standing firm will be putting God's word, Christ's words into practice. And so that's what he calls us to do. And we'll move through five specific areas that he touches on. And the first one is unity. He says, standing firm, we will strive for unity. Verses 2 and 3, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syncate to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, Lord Yophel, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers who named in the book of life. Two women who are offside with one another. He pleads with them. He pleads with them, agree with each other in the Lord, or literally be of one mind. And it's sad when we have in the church people who are living in disunity. It grieves Paul. And it's not just about just holding hands and just agreeing and we're going to just forget about things. And we're going... The gospel cannot be compromised. That's a given. Paul's made that clear in chapter 3 when he's spoken very harshly, very sternly about people who are going to fudge the gospel. He says we don't sit in a circle and hold hands with them. But coming into chapter 4, we have tragically here two women who can tell you what the gospel is. They are in agreement with what the gospel is. And they were significant in the church. They were actively involved with spreading the gospel. If they were in church by the bridge today, Sinkati, for instance, would be very involved with getting ready for carols under the bridge. He'd probably be sitting in a cafe, Barcinos, or one of the places that you go, sharing the gospel with someone. Euodia would be at a community lunch, helping serve after church, sitting down sharing the gospel. But when they came into church, they would look to see where the other one's sitting and make sure they sat somewhere else. If there was a dinner, they would make sure I didn't sit on the table with her, I've got to be somewhere else. Two women who can share the gospel, are convicted of the gospel, know the gospel, refuse to live in unity. It's tragic. And it's worse when it spreads in the church the church has to live with it, and it's worse when the church starts taking sides. It just spreads and it destroys. How awful it is when this unity is in the church. And we're not to foster it. If we understand the gospel, we will not live with disunity. We won't work for it. If there's anyone who you've had a disagreement with, or was of another mind with, when you were a sinner, it was God. You once lived in complete opposition to God. You had no desire to be united with God. You worked in every way to be cut off from Him. But God so loved you and me that He came into the world. He sent His Son to die. Jesus died on the cross. These people, if there's people here that are in disunity, Christ died on the cross for all of you. Christ poured out His Spirit. There's one Spirit in each of you. You share in the one death. You're of the one family, the one body. He who began a good work in you has begun a good work in them. And if we as Christians persist in disunity, we work intentionally, actively against God's good work. That's wrong. We must repent. If we understand the gospel, we will strive for unity. And just because you or I might not be having a disagreement with someone doesn't mean we just get to sit on the bench. We see in chapter verse 3, Paul calls upon people to help reconcile this situation. If there is disunity that we know of, are we praying that they might be united? Are we 
going to them and encouraging people to be reunited. We don't sit in a circle with either or and listen to them and start taking sides. No, we work to bring unity. That is what the gospel has accomplished. If we understand what Christ has done for us, if what Christ is doing in us, we will work for unity. So as a church standing firm in Christ, we will listen to Christ when he calls us to stand firm in unity. If we understand the gospel, that is what our lives of faith will look like. Secondly, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. I've known mates through the years who I once said, did rejoice in the Lord, but as the years, weeks, years, decades went by, they have had nothing to do with God. There was a time when you'd sit, I sat in church with them, went on camps, they sang, they raised their hands. But as time went on, the true joy, the true desire of their heart rose up and Christ was displaced. As they pursued a career, took up interests or hobbies that kept them away from God's people, kept their Bibles closed, they pursued relationships with unbelievers. The real desires of their heart were showing up that it was not Christ. And so as the time went on, they no longer rejoiced. We need to keep rejoicing in Christ if we will persevere. And Paul's experienced this. We read of Demas in the New Testament who deserted Paul and he was no flip. He was there with Paul on a mission trip. He was doing the gospel and it says his love for the world meant he left. In Acts, we read of Ananias and Sapphira, people in the church. They conned everyone in the church, but they didn't con the Holy Spirit when it was made very clear that they loved money more than Christ. It is important that we keep rejoicing in Christ. And when those things creep into your life or mine that are going to start challenging our joy in Christ, we need to stop, we need to think, use our minds and weigh up and realize and know what Christ has done. When we put Christ against whatever else is challenging your heart, its affections, they will be blown away in a matter of seconds if you are honest. Remember how great His love is for you. Remember His love for you while you were still sinners. Christ died for you. He's doing His good work in you. As you and I fumble along in the Christian faith, seeking to persevere with Christ, God isn't up there sort of, oh, another day. No, God's loving you and being with you and urging you on. God's heart is for you, not against you. On the day that we stand up before Christ, on the day He comes, on the day of the Lord, we will rejoice in Christ. Whatever car, whatever house, whatever wealth, whatever body you've been able to spend all your time creating, they will have nothing compared to the wonder and the joy of Christ who has saved you, who has made you a citizen in heaven, is going to give you a body like His, eternity. Weigh up the things that fight for your affections and weigh them up against Christ. And know there is much more reason to rejoice in Him. Stand firm. What fire are you stoking in your heart? If we think of Christ and what He has done for us, that fire will burn bright. Don't be distracted. Don't let it grow dim. As we stand firm, we will rejoice in Christ. He gives us another area. He says in verse 5, Let your gentleness be evident to all. It could also read, Let your graciousness or your forbearance. 
We had a situation in verse 2 where these two women needed to show a bit of graciousness to one another. But in this sentence, he sort of throws it out into the whole realm of the way that we live. It's an attitude. And it's not just that we've got to be gentle, but gentle to, evident to all. How often have we had a negative word said against us? Someone might have passed on some unkind gossip about us. Someone might have left, made you feel left out. Someone might have intentionally even sought to hurt you. On we could go and how quickly in our hearts and our minds we can quickly build up resentment. We can quickly think of ways we're going to get back at them. We can quickly think of who we're going to share this with to get them on side against them. No, we are called to be, show gentleness, to be gracious. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Respond not with evil but with kindness. That is what is to mark us as we understand the gospel once again. God has shown you and I the greatest of gentleness, of kindness, of graciousness. How much have we wronged Him? How much have we lived against Him? How much is He lovely, but we are ugly in our sin? We've got to show gentleness to all people, not just those who we like. Those people who we find frustrating, annoying, wish they'd just go away. No, we're to show God's grace and love towards them. Because that's what God did towards you and me. God loved us. He's graciously laid down his life for us. We who were unlovely. And he didn't go to the cross annoyed or frustrated. Christ went to the cross with love written all over his heart. That we might be restored to him. So let's not be a people who harbour spite or division or stubbornness, harbour ill thoughts. Or let's get rid of that. And we will as we understand God's grace towards us, God's gentleness towards us. And another area that he says in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God. We sum that little one up, will we trust God? It's all about trust. Paul writes, don't be anxious. And he's not writing to a people who are living in a church in the country where everything's nice and they're smelling the roses. We've known as we've gone through Philippians that this is a church that we might even say has every reason to be anxious. They don't go to church and park their cars calmly and walk up to the church and probably stand on the street and have a coffee and come in and sing some songs. And No. The gospel was opposed in Philippi. When they went to church, they probably had to duck as things were probably flung their way. When they sat in church, they probably wondered how long is the service going to be able to go on for. Paul was in prison. He and Silas were imprisoned. They were beaten. Paul's writing to Christians who he said have been called to suffer for the gospel and were suffering. So he's writing to a church and he knows exactly the situation they're in. And we might be in a situation today not facing the same opposition. But we'll have things that will make us anxious. Things that will make us feel as though life's out of our control. Things that will make us want to start making decisions so as to get our life back the way, make things feel secure again. And we can be anxious about loneliness, getting older, health, persecution, money, all these areas. And I think we won't by the grace of God, suffer in the same way the Philippians were, but two areas in particular, I think. 
in a culture that preaches the accumulation of wealth, we watch our TVs, we listen to our radios, it doesn't take long for us to be a part of that and to become anxious if we're not accumulating some sort of financial wealth. If we don't have enough money, we can start to feel insecure. What about the worries too? If years go by and we might not marry, we start to get anxious, tempted to make unwise decisions. In the parable of the sower, Jesus says, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the words, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. We need to be people. Are we the people in whom the seed has fallen in good soil? Will we be, when those times come up, we start to see, times of difficulty, where we are standing. Are we standing on Christ or are our feet shifting? God has begun a good work in us. We read that in chapter 1. We've been told that by faith. If we believe that God has begun a good work in us, a work that he has promised he'll bring to completion, when those times come, we don't despair. We don't step away from Christ. Rather, we fall on our knees and we come before God asking him to supply, to provide for us, to help us stay secure. And furthermore, if we know God is doing a good work within us, We're thankful, constantly. Even when things aren't the way we'd want them to be. We're confident that God knows what He's doing. God is sovereign. God's begun a good work. He hasn't isn't off the job. He's still doing it and will keep doing it 24-7. Living by faith. Read Hebrews 11. You'll get all sorts of people who had tough lives, but they remain faithful. So rather than step away from Christ, let's be prayerful, let's be thankful, knowing that God is at work in us. The disciples must have been very anxious when they saw Christ suffering and then Christ on the cross and then Christ dead. But God was at work doing the most wonderful thing. Paul was in prison and and we read in Philippians 1.27 that he says, all the trials and sufferings he is having to endure will work out for his salvation. All that we experience in life, God in his good work is working out for our salvation, your salvation, my salvation. God is good. There's a wonderful lady, and some of you might have heard, called Corrie ten Boom. She was a lady from, who lived in Holland during the Second World War. The Nazis invaded. And her family, her father, they protected the Jews and helped them get out. Finally, they were exposed. The family was taken away to concentration camps. Family died in the concentration camp. Corrie had every reason to be anxious. But with all her ups and downs, as you read her story, she just kept clinging to Jesus. Sure, there were hard days. And following the war, she continued to... And her release, because she's a miracle, read the story, she gets released. She travels the world in a wheelchair. This elderly lady travels the world, talking of the confidence and the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. And she has this image that I've never forgotten. That for us, as we go through our lives, often we're looking at the back of a tapestry. We see knots, we see everything scattered, we see these random things all over the place. Mishmash. But one day, she says, when we get to heaven, we'll see what the other side. We'll see the most beautiful picture that God has been at work doing in your life and mine through all that he's brought us through. God is at work for our good, so be prayerful, be thankful, don't despair, trust Him. 
And the last of these few things that he goes through, he says in verse 7, verse 8, sorry, he says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things. Our minds, he says. And my little summary of all that is, fill our minds with good. Fill our minds with good. As we stand firm in Christ, we'll seek to fill our minds with things of God, not the things that are rubbish. And the image that came to mind as I was thinking through that was a picture of a garden. If God flipped over, if we could flip over in the lid of our head and we could see what we're cultivating in there. Are we cultivating weeds and thistles and letting all that grow in our minds? Or are we actively getting rid of those things, cultivating the good, creating something beautiful? That is what we're called to do. And it's a decision that you and I make each day. What will we fill our minds with? Will we harbour animosity? What will we watch? What will we read? What will we listen to? What will we think? Will we read the Bible? We make decisions each day with how we cultivate our minds. And as we stand firm in Christ, we will cultivate them with good. With good. So don't allow lies to creep into our minds. Don't allow distrust to creep into our minds. Focus and fill our minds with the things of Christ, with what is good and true. So as we stand firm in faith, it's going to be evident in how we live. If we call Christ our Lord, it will show in the things that we do. And it's not a passage that says we can just be selective I'll be gentle to one person but not another. No. I'll give this situation over to God, but this one I'm going to allow myself to fret constantly. No. What do we read? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. In verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. In verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. Trust God, be prayerful and thankful. Fill our minds with some good? No, with all good permeates all that we do, the whole lives that we live. And so Paul writes, and as we read when we started this section, whatever you have heard, learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. We have just heard things that God has passed on to us through Paul. And we are called by faith to live in those ways, to put them into practice. But how is it going to be possible for us to, do, to keep persevering in these ways? And I'm sure you've noticed there's been two parts, two wonderful parts of these verses that we've stepped over so far. Paul's, if we're going to look at verse 7, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. Then he says, Be gentle, your gentleness be to everyone. He says, Be prayerful and thankful. Then comes a wonderful promise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then after that, he says, Fill our minds with good, put God's word into practice. Then he gives the wonderful promise again. And what does it say? And the God of peace will be with you. As we live by faith in Christ, it is God who brings the victory. Standing firm is by the grace of God. God's goodness towards us. It is He who brings the victory. The verse doesn't say that as we stand firm in Christ, God's going to be at work so that we live a comfortable life, have all the things we desire. No. God's doing something far better, far more wonderful as we stand firm 
by faith, God in his grace is at work to make sure our souls are secure for all eternity. To make sure that we finish the race. That we, that we stand firm. That it's far more important than all the other things that we might think. And whatever circumstances, God is with us and watching over us by grace. And this picture there of the peace of God or the God of peace, it flips it around. Isn't, we aren't to have this idea of God like this wonderful person, this big marshmallow that comes and just makes us feel all peaceful. No. In the New Testament, the God of peace, we read in Romans 16, is the one who will crush Satan. The God of peace has the power to bring peace. And we read that he is the one, and Paul goes back to his military language again, will guard our hearts. He said, literally, he will garrison himself around us. As we live in this life, in the battle that we face, it is God who garrisons himself around us as we stand by faith on Christ. And it's a wonderful image. It's a vivid image. And it's one for the Philippians. We're in a city that was a garrison city. They saw the Roman soldiers walking around. They knew the Roman soldiers had been garrisoned there to maintain this position, to not let it fall. And Paul is saying that is what God will do in our hearts and in our minds. So imagine your heart and mind as a castle. And daily it's being assaulted. Daily things are coming our way to try and take it. Daily we face temptations. Temptation comes storming up towards the walls of the castle. We have things of this world challenging us, trying to take it. But God has stationed himself there at the perimeter and over it. His peace surrounds it. God of peace. His peace is there, but he himself. Friends, as we stand firm in Christ, we have the greatest, the mightiest, the all-powerful defender who guards us. As you and I sit here tonight with whatever's going on in your head, with faith, by faith in Christ, God the Almighty is garrisoning himself around us, enabling us to keep persevering, to ensure that we stand firm. So when I get up tomorrow, you and you're feeling very feeble, and your mind's feeling very weak, as we cling to Christ, we have the strongest, the mightiest defender that we need, can ever need. Satan won't laugh at you and me in our despair or in our frailty. But as he marches up to the wall, he's going to run with his tail between his feet because he'll see God garrisoned there. God who will crush him. God who has defeated him. And it's a peace of God, which we're told, that transcends understanding. And I see this in several ways. When Paul had spoken the gospel of Christ and suddenly found themselves beaten in prison, locked up in jail, what do the Philippians hear them doing? Not groaning, not crying, not sulking. The Philippians hear them singing being thankful and praising God. They don't get it. How is this possible? But the peace of God was with Paul and Silas. That's that they were confident. Their souls were secure with the Lord and so they praised Him no matter what circumstances they found themselves in. And we find that in our own Christian lives, sometimes we make decisions for Christ and we have peace about it. Our non-Christian friends are confounded by that. If you're not married and you say, I'm going to live with sexual purity, your non-Christian friends are going to laugh at you. And then they'll be confounded that you can have peace and contentment in that. It's a peace that transcends understanding. And it transcends our understanding too. How is it possible that if you are someone who once was greedy and loved money, could now be content without it? 
If you're someone who had an anger problem and now in Christ you're finding that you don't harbour that same anger. There's a peace that is at work. Once you craved wealth, but now you're content with just what you need. God's peace is at work. God is garrisoning us. And we're told anyway that it's a peace that transcends understanding. It's beyond us. It's supernatural. God works a miracle in your life and mine to guard us in the gospel, to keep us protected in Christ. So standing firm, we can rejoice in him because of what God is at work in our lives doing. When the world challenges us, God is at work keeping us rejoicing in Christ. When the world comes our way and poses us and things happen in our lives and we want to react against, by the grace of God, through faith in Christ, God garrisons us that we respond as Christ would have us respond. When we are anxious and people are fretting and you're wondering what's going on in your life and you fall on your knees before God, God will give us peace that we won't fret. And in our minds, God will work guarding our minds and we read in the New Testament to make our minds more and more like the mind of Christ. That is the grace of God, enabling us to keep running and not be knocked out, to hold our ground and to stand firm in the gospel and to not be opposed so that we fall away. Friends, we persevere in Christ not by our strength, but by God's. He's mighty, he's powerful. Are we standing firm on Christ? Are both feet on Christ? And we'll live by faith. So living, stand firm, we live by faith. Stand firm is by the grace of God. And it's wonderful that as I live this faith, as I go through more times where I feel like just stopping, but I keep clinging to Jesus, God is the one who strengthens me and enables me to keep on going. And the same for you as you hold on to Christ and stand with him. We've had, from God's word, challenged to stand firm in Christ and God is at work by grace. Let's take hold of those truths. Let's be confident in the gospel. Let's know that he who began a good work in us will and is bringing it to completion. So let's put God's word into practice and rejoice in our mighty Saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are garrisoned around us that your spirit indwells us, that you are with us, you are watching over us. Lord, be at work in us, we dearly pray that our feet stand upon Christ and as that faith works out, Lord, may we truly love one another. May we love you in the way that we ought. And may the gospel, Lord, be our delight. So we thank you, Lord, that we are saved through faith by grace from beginning to end. In Jesus' name, amen.